you have your Bibles, I'd ask that you turn to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. And the king called loudly to bring in the enchanters and the Chaldeans and the astrologers. And the king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then... All the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. And the king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give the interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom." Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. 
And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. You have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed, And this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Let's pray. Sovereign God, as you are the one who governs not only nations, but over the very hearts of men and women, We ask that you would make every heart in this room tonight attentive to your word so that together we would, by faith, grow into confident, humble worshipers of you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Since it's been a little while since we've been in Daniel, it's worth beginning with a bit of a refresher. As punishment for their sin of idolatry, God caused the mighty nation of Babylon to defeat his people and take them into captivity, that is, the people of Judah. And the overarching purpose of the book of Daniel is to remind the people of God that even in exile, even hundreds of miles from home, in a hostile and pagan culture that created all, sense, uh, all sorts of uh, uh, uncertainty for the people of God, that God was still in charge. God was still sovereign, even in this hostile pagan culture. And our text this evening causes us to consider the sovereignty of God, the in-chargeness of God in a particular way. It teaches us that God's sovereignty over nations And over men in the destruction of of proud Babylon, it shows us three things. It shows us first the security of the saints, the people of God. 
shows us, secondly, the, the fatal folly of the proud, and thirdly, it shows us something of the grace of God. So in other words, when we consider rightly the doctrine of God's sovereignty, His power, when we consider that rightly, it will produce men and women who are quietly confident about the future, who are growing in humility, and who are truly amazed by the grace of God. So let's dive into our text. Our story begins with the introduction of a new figure in the book, King Belshazzar of Babylon. Up until this point in the book of Daniel, uh, the Babylonian Empire is under the rule of King Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar enjoyed a very uh, prosperous 43-year reign over Babylon. But now, Daniel tells us, it's not Nebuchadnezzar on the throne, but it's Belshazzar. And Belshazzar, we have good reason for thinking, was not uh, Nebuchadnezzar's actual biological son, uh, though many English Bibles will use this language of father and son, but uh, commentators generally agree that the words used have broader meaning to refer to uh, uh, predecessor-successor relationship. You can even see that in your ESV footnotes if you're using that translation. And according to our historical records, when Nebuchadnezzar died in 562 BC, he was succeeded by his son, Ebal Merodach, who's mentioned in 2 Kings 25. And he was assassinated by his brother-in-law, Nergal Sherezer. And you thought your Christmas was perhaps uh, tense around family. Well, it was pretty tense in the Babylonian uh, hierarchy. And his son, uh, Labashi Marduk, succeeded him but was assassinated a mere two months into the job. So all this takes place uh, in the six years after Nebuchadnezzar's death. This brings a man named Nabonidus to the throne. And he ruled over Babylon for approximately 17 years. And uh, unfortunately for him, uh, he ran into some political troubles. And so Nabonidus spent most of his reign outside the capital city of Babylon, And in his stead, he appointed his son, Belshazzar, to be a co-ruler with him. So when we pick up uh, in the book of Daniel, we have to fast forward 23 years approximately uh, from chapter 4 where we left off. And where we pick it up, it's a rather dramatic moment in world history. Historical records help us out here by showing that uh, the story that that we read probably happened on October 10 or October 11 in 539 B.C. Nabonidus Chronicle, one of the ancient records we have, reports that Cyrus, uh, the king of Persia, uh, who was leading the Medo-Persian forces, he had just won a rather significant victory over the Babylonian army. He had, uh, uh, Cyrus had defeated Nabonidus uh, and his army just a few weeks prior. So with this in mind, it's rather unexpected or surprising that we meet Belshazzar at a party. To an outside observer, the, the prospects uh, of Babylon uh, seem uh, perhaps bleak or in question. Babylonian Empire is facing a serious threat. The mighty Persian army is sweeping across the land, having tasted blood already, and it's surging toward the capital city. And Belshazzar and his his nobles, his court, decide rather than picking up their shields and their swords, they decide that they're going to pick up their bottles and their glasses to party. So a thousand of the most important people of Babylon are with Belshazzar in his banquet hall, and the wine is flowing very, very freely. 
And we can read between the lines and suppose that uh, this was a pretty raucous, a pretty lewd party. Belshazzar is not only there with his wives, but he's also there with his concubines, women who uh, were attached to Belshazzar for the sole purpose of his own pleasure. So we see this this, uh, banging party where there's wine, there's women, and there's also worship. The king and and his his, uh, court, they are engaged in pagan idol worship. They raise their glasses and they praise the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. And as this party rages on, suddenly, quite abruptly, the king is arrested by the strangest of sights. Perhaps uh, you can imagine uh, uh, Belshazzar wiping his eyes as if this was some sort of a a mistake that he's seeing. Or maybe he looks down at his his goblet and he wonders whether the wine is playing tricks on him. But there, illuminated on the wall by the candlesticks, he sees a human hand, only a human hand, carving into the plaster of the wall. Mene, mene, tekel, parson, the hand scratches. And this, the the king understandably recoils, and the color drains from his face, and he begins shaking in his royal boots. The king is is so afraid as he sees this hand carving in these, these letters that he actually loses control of himself, and he wets himself in terror. That's, that's actually what the language used of his limbs giving away uh, quite likely means that he, he, he uh, lost control, right? So this king who is, uh, thinks he's, he's so powerful can't even control his own bladder when this hand is writing on the wall. And Belshazzar's response is to cry out for his pagan counselors, the Chaldeans, the enchanters, the astrologers, And we're familiar with uh, these characters by now. They're the Larry, Moe, and Curly of the king's court. This is the the third time that they've been called in to serve the king. And it's the third time that they've proven to be completely worthless. They can't provide an answer. They can't explain or interpret the writing on the wall. And so at this, the king becomes really fearful. He's greatly alarmed now in verse 9. He's witnessed this mysterious hand upon the wall, and, and his advisors say, yeah, you know what? We actually have no clue what's going on here. You are in big trouble. And at this, uh, it's just chaos in the banquet hall by this point. And the commotion caused by the king and, and by his court is so great that the queen, and likely this is uh, the queen mother, and for more on that, you can do your own homework, but uh, the queen mother finds Belshazzar, And she counsels him to find Daniel. Daniel has proven himself, she says, to be a quite capable counselor. In in the days of Nebuchadnezzar, he could uh, interpret dreams. He's someone who has the divine wisdom, the wisdom of the gods, the ability to interpret and explain mysteries. And so they they go and they fetch Daniel, uh, who hadn't come in with the other wise men and who evidently is not in the banquet hall at this time. And yet, even though it's, it's the king who's knocking his knees and is, is there in, in soiled pants, the king decides he's, he's going to scoff at Daniel. He says, you're that Daniel, an exile, a slave. He's kind of rubbing Daniel's nose in it as if Daniel's a nobody. Some say that you have the spirit of the gods in you, although I'm not so sure about this. 
we might hear Belshazzar say. Now, my wise men can't give me the meaning of, of this hand, but supposedly you can. So if you can actually do what you're supposed to do, then I'll reward you by giving you some royal clothes and royal jewelry, and I'll make you the third in command. Remember, he can only offer the third in command if he's a co-ruler with his father, Nabonidus. Now, Daniel's not a nobody. Remember from our earlier readings in Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar had already awarded uh, the king, uh, or uh, Daniel had already been uh, awarded the position of ruler over the province of Babylon. And he had been made to uh, be the, the head over the Babylonian wise men. But here, in front of all the nobles of the court, in front of the who's who of Babylon, Belshazzar treats the elderly Daniel as a lowly exile whose abilities are in question. Now, as as Daniel opens his mouth to respond to Belshazzar, we'll see uh, that the proud king is indicted uh, for his pride. In response to the king's offer, Daniel says he's not really interested in the reward at all, but he'll interpret the vision, the dream, or the vision he's seen nonetheless. But first, he has to make a necessary comparison between two kings. Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel says, was given all that he had from the Lord, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, his predecessor. The position of, of king, the military victories that uh, Nebuchadnezzar had won, the expansive empire, the courts uh, of advisors and, and the leaders, the ridiculous wealth that he had been given, uh, the authority to take life and to protect it, the, the subservience of, of the nations around Babylon, all these things were given to him by the Lord of Israel. Nebuchadnezzar would have had none of these things if it were not for God's Uh, uh, if it was not according to God's pleasure and God's purposes. And as you might recall, this was not a lesson that Nebuchadnezzar had caught on to quickly. As far as he was concerned, the vast and impressive kingdom was a matter of personal accomplishment. Remember in Daniel chapter 4 how Nebuchadnezzar is is striding out onto his rooftop palace and there in a parade of me's and my's he says, look at my kingdom which is for my majesty and for my glory. And he just marvels at himself. This was an act of, of theological plagiarism. He was taking credit for something that he didn't do. Yes, Nebuchadnezzar had commanded men into battle. And yes, he had passed laws and certified building plans. And he had ruled over people. But he could do none of these things apart from God willing it to be so. God could have thwarted every plan Nebuchadnezzar had. He could have uh, sent defeat instead of victory. He could have cracked the walls that protected Babylon. He could have decimated the foundations of the temples that Nebuchadnezzar had built. He could have raised up enemies from within and, and from without. At any second, God could have recalled the life that he lent to Nebuchadnezzar simply by stopping his heart. And so, when we... Last looked at the book of Daniel, uh, because Nebuchadnezzar did not realize this, because he was proud and hard-hearted, God sent Nebuchadnezzar crashing down to reality. He was brought down from his throne. He was stripped of his glory. He was driven from the children of men. Nebuchadnezzar ate and thought like an animal as God took away his sanity. In this way, God would teach Nebuchadnezzar who was really in charge. And Nebuchadnezzar would 
learn his lesson. This was not, however, a lesson that Belshazzar would learn. Though he had benefited from the warning of his predecessor, Belshazzar was not humbled at all. In fact, he was the exact opposite. He didn't acknowledge the the Lord as God, but it was as if Belshazzar stood up straight, looked God in the face, so to speak, and spat in his eye and said, I'm God here. Well, how did Belshazzar do this? Well, in order for us to see the nature of Belshazzar's pride, we need to look again at his table. Specifically, we need to look at the vessels, the goblets from which he and his nobles drank. The vessels uh, or cups that uh, they were drinking from were ones that had been taken from the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. And there in the temple of God in Jerusalem, these vessels were, had been um, uh, set apart for service to the Lord. They were precious, they were valuable, not simply because they had a material value being made out of gold or silver, but they were valuable because these had been set apart, set aside. They were to be used only in the Lord's service in his temple. But when the, uh, Nebuchadnezzar invades uh, Jerusalem and he plundered it, he made off with these sacred vessels and he deposits them in the temple of his god, Bel. And there, so far as we know, they stayed as trophies of Nebuchadnezzar's great conquests. Until, that is, Belshazzar called for them. For whatever reason, whether it was to openly mock uh, the Lord of Israel or whether it was to perhaps remind his courts of, of victories that had been won as the Medes and Persians marched closer, Belshazzar, when he calls for these vessels, was sending a message loud and clear. He was saying, uh, God is just like one of my subjects. He, he is someone that I'm not afraid to trifle with. I can use these things which supposedly were God, God's for my own purposes. Belshazzar was saying, in effect, he was sovereign, not God. Belshazzar would not recognize the divine ownership of these vessels. He would not acknowledge that uh, they were in his possession only because God had ordained that it would be so, only because a God whose glory filled the temple had, had decided that he would punish his people in this way. So Daniel, as God's spokesman, points the finger right at Belshazzar and says, and you, Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's son, you have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, though you knew Nebuchadnezzar's, the example of Nebuchadnezzar, but you have lifted up your heart in pride against the Lord of heaven. You've taken the vessels of his house that were dedicated for his worship to serve and to worship uh, worthless idols, these idols of gold and silver and the like. Daniel, you can just hear him saying, you have the audacity, you have the impudence to take these things set apart for the living God and use them to, to worship those things which are lifeless, to profane those vessels which belong to the God who's, who holds your life in his hands. And on account of this pride, Daniel goes on to say that Belshazzar is a dead man. Writing on the wall was God's declaration that Belshazzar's days were numbered. His time was quickly running out before his reign, his life would end. God had weighed Belshazzar's ways and found him guilty. And the sentence was given. He was to be put to death by the Medes and the Persians. His kingdom was to be torn apart by this joint force. 
The king then rewards Daniel, as he said, but of course it's a meaningless gesture. For that very night, and perhaps it was a few hours, maybe it was a a few minutes, the Medo-Persian armies come and they overtake the city and Belshazzar is put to death. Again, historical testimony is helpful for us here because uh, it, it tells us that the Medes and the Persians, knowing they couldn't get through these thick double walls of Babylon, instead they diverted the Euphrates River, which ran right through the city, into a marsh so that these armies could come marching right into the heart of the city. Wasn't even a problem for them. Uh, two ancient historians uh, add for us that uh, they, they uh, corroborate the testimony of Daniel by telling us that the armies knew that Babylon uh, was caught up in drunken revelry when they invaded. So this was, was God's uh, sentence. His word was swiftly executed as the armies come marching in and bring an end to Belshazzar's reign. But it wasn't just a, a fulfillment of, of the writing on the wall. This was also a fulfillment of the dream that God had sent Nebuchadnezzar some 55 years earlier in Daniel chapter 2. You remember that that towering image of of gold and and silver and bronze? And in the dream, it was the gold head which represented Babylon. And this was to be replaced, Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar, by another kingdom. This is the fulfillment of, of that dream. But it was also the fulfillment of another dream that Daniel had, and we'll get to that later in the book of Daniel, in Daniel 7 and 8. It was the fulfillment of a word also spoken by the, the prophet Isaiah some 160 years earlier. In Isaiah 13, he, he, uh, uh, Isaiah predicts by the power of the Holy Spirit that God would use the Medes to overthrow Babylon. So God declares what will come to pass. He he says it, and then he shows his power to lift up nations and to uproot other nations so that his word comes to pass. That is power. It's a proof of God's sovereignty, his, his, his authority that he can do this. He can make his word come to pass. And this is a, a tremendously comforting thing if you belong to this God. Because it means that if you belong to this God, to Daniel's God, all that power to move kingdoms is applied to your account. You are being kept by that king-moving, kingdom-removing power. God's power means that God's word, his promises for his people are kept. So if God could announce through his prophetic spokesperson that he would bring mighty Babylon to ruins, and if he could announce beforehand the exact instrument that he would use to do that. Why should we doubt that he's capable of keeping his promises concerning his people? Why should we think that God would somehow fail to bring to completion his work of grace in us? Why should we fail to to believe that God is able to raise us up also with Jesus and bring us into the presence of God? Why should we somehow worry that God will not cause us to overcome the world as 1 John 5, 4 promises? Why should we think that God would not keep us from the evil one as Jesus prays in John 17? Right? The, the natural eyes, uh, such as Belshazzar's, they would see the, the, uh, uh, the walls of the city of, of Babylon 25 feet wide and 40 feet high, and he would see the armies, and he would see the, the uh, several years' worth of provision, and he would conclude that he was as safe and secure as he could possibly be. 
And we're tempted to do a little bit of the same, to view the world through these same eyes as Belshazzar. We think, well, if if we have enough money saved up, or or if we've got the right medical plan or, or the proper insurance or a good job lined up, then we're safe. Or, or maybe, uh, conversely, we see bigger forces. We see international politics. We see national politics. We see economic forces that seemingly cut through human affairs like a glacier. And we worry about our security. In both instances, though, our confidence and our fearful insecurity, uh, we're looking with the same natural eyes. But when we see through the eyes of, of faith, we see that the safest person at the party in Daniel 5 is not Belshazzar, who has all the appearances of natural security, but who is it? It's Daniel. Let me give you a more contemporary, perhaps more provocative way of of thinking about this point. If you were a a North Korean Christian in Pyongyang right now, with zero dollars in your pocket, you would be more secure than any member of our national government who does not belong to God by faith. That's, uh, or, or, or may, maybe let me use a closer-to-home example. If you were a, a Christian living in the worst part of Grand Rapids, part of Grand Rapids where, where bullets pass through windows and, and where crime is high, if you were a Christian in that area, you would be more secure than a pagan living in Hudsonville. That's, that's, that's what Daniel, throughout the book, is wanting to communicate. The people of God, no matter where they are, are secure because they rest in his hand. We have all sorts of trouble believing this, but at the core, it's it's a weakness of our faith. And the remedy, of course, is is to confess this and repent of it and then look afresh at the actual historical display of God's power and realize that if you belong to him, if you belong to the one who moves nations, then to paraphrase the Heidelberg Catechism, you belong to, you have uh, in your favor the almighty and ever-present power of God. And that is your good confidence, your good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing will separate you from his love and that all creatures are in his hand and cannot be moved or moved apart from his will. A second application that we can take from this haunting scene of Babylon's destruction is the foolishness and danger of pride. When God sends his prophet, his junior counsel, to prosecute the case against Belshazzar, what does he accuse him of? He accuses him of pride. And where does he point the finger? Well, he points the finger at the vessel in the king's hand. Belshazzar thought that he could use the, the, the Lord's instruments for his own purpose. He could profane them and that this was a small thing. But this is, uh, it's not a small thing to just take what's God's and use it however you want. And we see in God's response to this just how much God hates pride. God sends an army across the Middle East to not only keep his word, but to execute judgment on proud Babylon. That's how serious that God takes pride. This is a, a terrifying prospect as I think about it. Right? And some of you might be thinking, well, well uh, I, I know I'm not perfect, right? Uh, I know that, but I'm not necessarily proud like that. Most of the time, you know, I have trouble thinking that I'm actually any, uh, any good at all. But that's a misunderstanding of what pride is. Pride isn't just the, the overinflated sense of self-worth that expresses itself in words, but it's Uh, it's the person who insists on on ownership where there is no ownership. 
What does pride look like, we might ask? It looks like the person who's looking at online pornography. It looks like the person who's involved in illicit, an illicit uh, sexual encounter. Some of you might be wondering, uh, is he even preaching the same sermon uh, or the same text? But how did we go from sacred vessels here to sex? But I'll tell you how. The New Testament makes this connection between uh, uh, that there's not just, uh, we don't have vessels in the temple per se, physical cups or anything like that that are set apart for service to God any longer. Uh, But we, in fact, as the people of God have been set apart for his service. If you were to look at 1 Thessalonians 4, and you may turn there in your Bibles, the apostle Paul says uh, that uh, God's will for us is our sanctification, our holiness, our, our being set apart. And then from there, he, he makes uh, the case that we should abstain from sexual immorality and we should control our own body. And literally in the Greek there, that is control his own vessel in holiness and honor. Why? Because you've been called, you've been set apart for holiness, service to God. So we don't have cups and, and vessels that have been set apart, but we have people who have been set apart for service to God. Sexual sin is is just an announcement to the sovereign God that says, my body, my choice, when in fact it's God's body and God's choice. He sets the terms for how our bodies are used. And when we reject that, it's the devilish pride of Belshazzar. It's to spit at or functionally repudiate the sovereignty of God. But uh, sexual sin is is just one example of what uh, uh, pride might look like. Another example, if you were baptized what was said, or at least what was signified in your baptism, is that you have been visibly set apart. The recipient of baptism is, is being marked by water as a sign that they are set apart for worship, for service to God. A person or a life is being set apart for God, like sacred vessels were. So then to not use those hands, to not use those lips to to praise God, to not use that mind to think God-honoring thoughts, to not use that breath and the strength which God provides, to not use that to worship God is no different than Belshazzar's foolish and fatal pride. We can go on to all sorts of other examples, how we use the Lord's Supper, uh, where the elements are duly set apart uh, for uses ordained by God, or or all sorts of other examples. But the the root idea is uh, that that sin at its root is, is pride. It's saying, I'm going to use God's thing, God's things in my way. I repudiate his ownership. I repudiate his sovereignty. The reason I said Belshazzar's pride and Daniel's indictment of it was frightening was that I think, at least uh, in my case, that I am far more proud, and I think you might say the same, than I would like to realize. And God's far more angry with pride than I would like to know. And if that's the case, then we have to ask ourselves, what hope is there for proud people like us when God detests our pride so much? Well, the hope is found in that there are two proud men in our story, Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar. Belshazzar would experience the swift and decisive judgment against his pride, but Nebuchadnezzar would not. This means that there is a a way out for proud people. 
Nebuchadnezzar was humbled, he was brought low, but he wasn't destroyed in judgment like Belshazzar. Why is that? What was the difference between these two men? Nebuchadnezzar repented, he turned from his pride, and he acknowledged uh, God for who he really was, but why is that? Was it, uh, why was he given the opportunity to turn and to repent? Why not Belshazzar? Was it because that, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was a better person? Well, certainly not. He was a ruthless man of war. Was it because he was less proud than Belshazzar? Well, if we heard his declarations on the rooftop in Daniel 4, we would say, no, that's not the case. The only reason that Nebuchadnezzar was able to turn from his pride to God, and the only reason that proud people like you and like me can have hope, is the sovereign grace of God. If you're a Christian, if God has shown you your pride, the only reason that's the case is not because you're so wonderful, but it's because God, by his divine prerogative, has decided to show you mercy. He's decided to show you sovereign grace. The God who moves kings and kingdoms could say to Belshazzar, for this purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might, and my, and my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And at the same time, and according to his own good pleasure, God could also say to a proud and murderous, undeserving man like Nebuchadnezzar, I have made you a vessel of my mercy. That's good news for people like us, that God's grace, uh, that that God willingly in his sovereignty would show mercy to, to weak and undeserving sinners, to think of that truth, that while we were weak, God showed his mercy. He showed his costly mercy by the sending of a savior, Jesus, his son, to die in a totally effective, completely uh, salvific death for proud and ungodly sinners like us. God's sovereignty is not only responsible then for the security of the people of God, but it's responsible for the salvation of the people of God. This is good news. God's sovereignty in our salvation is good news as we look forward to the coming year. That God is not only sovereign over nations, over massive forces to secure us, but God is also sovereign and his power is greater than all our sin to save us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you as the God who is, is sovereign. We thank you for your power which is able to secure us against all our foes, whether they be great nations or whether they, they just be the, the, uh, the enemies, the, the troubles that we face in a given week. Father, we pray that you would remind us again and again as we look ahead to the coming year that by your power, all your saints rest secure, completely secure. Pray, Lord, that you would remind us that uh, as, as we think on, on your sovereignty and of your power, we would be humbled. We would recognize that you are the one who is in charge and, and that we would acknowledge and, and live according to your ownership of all things. And Lord, we, we uh, pray that we would just be increasingly in awe of the fact that by your sovereign power, you have saved proud and undeserving sinners like us.
Thank you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.